So I've been, for the past, I'd say two weeks, I've been thinking a lot about, and this is something that I've, I've had previously, um, but I've th been thinking a lot about how we run races as humankind. Um, you know, in, in simplifying it a lot, there are two different kinds of races. There's the sprint and then there's the marathon. You can run really quickly for a short period of time or you can run uh, not as quickly but for a very long time. Um, and I think what we as a society have been prone to doing uh, or we, in our culture at least, as what I've seen, is that we've looked a lot of, um, on or we've been talking a lot about sprints. We look very short, we look uh, at pace and we, we look at, you know, quite, quite narrow things, I would say. Um, and we judge things about or on their sprints rather than on their marathons. Sort of like what we've been talking about, the long arc of time. Mm. So can, can um, you give an, an, an example? What sort of well, sprints the, the example that I, the, the example I want to get into is, is with COVID. Because um, right now I've, or we've, sort of been sharing a lot of articles on, on how we're handling COVID in Sweden. And one example is, is um, one of the, the chief editors of one of the largest newspapers in Sweden called Peter Volodarsky, um, who's been out uh, talking a lot about Sweden's approach being the wrong thing to do because everyone else is doing something else. Uh, he's been pointing to, to the... Chinese way to do it or the South Korean way to do it, you know, complete lockdown, um, stopping the spread, you know, and making it dead silent, basically. Um, that's, that's what he's been talking about. And that's what a lot of people have been talking about lately. You know, we need to stop this uh, as, as quickly as we can. And we need to sort of just stomp it down. Uh, make it go to zero and that's what you've been doing in in china or south korea you know you you have basically no spread right now um but what we're also looking at there is a sprint and that's not something that i think people have been talking about china has done an amazing fucking hundred meter race you know, going from, from a lot of people uh, having the virus and a lot of spread to very few in a very short period of time. What I think we're doing in Sweden, I would argue, and, and I'd like to explore with you guys, is that we're running a marathon. We're looking at a longer arc of time and we're saying, okay, let's pace ourselves because this is going to take a while. You know, we need to find somewhere to put our tired. Because this is going to take a while. We're going to be running 
for a long period of time. And what, what I've been seeing in the world is, let's sprint. This is the race. Let's go. Let's run. Now, quickly. And sort of taking those two perspectives in general, I think that, and that, that might be my, my predisposition of, of long distance running, but I do think that the marathon way of thinking is generally better fit, a better fit for humans. Because things take time. And especially in this case where, you know, we're not going to find a vaccine tomorrow. If that would be the case, a sprint would be a lot better. But right now we don't know when we're going to find a vaccine. If we're going to find a vaccine. And in the marathon as well, I want to add this sort of as, as another dimension of it. You might need to do a sprint. A sprint might be part of the marathon. You might have to push a little bit harder to get over that hill. You might need to push a little bit harder because something is happening around you. You know, looking at, at how we uh, lived as hunter-gatherers, there might be something that makes you, you know, okay, we need to push on for a bit now. We're going to run for two more days, but this bit of stretch needs a little extra push. We need some pace. And that's super fine, but you're still keeping the long arc of time in this perspective. I don't want to say it's a long arc of time, but, but you're still keeping the marathon aspect of it. Yeah, lots of interesting themes to unpack. And in a sense, there's a, a sort of strictly biological aspect to that that I'm thinking of, you know, sort of all mammals have the same amount of heartbeats and breaths in, in a lifetime, right? So the really itty bitty mouse, you know, they're quick as fuck, right? Yeah, but they only live a year or two or three. The, the blue whale, it's really slow, and yeah, they live longer than we do, but we're sort of physiologically not created to be a sprinter. Um, we are in it for a longer um, aspect, but then this thing <laughs> possibly sort of, well, yeah, trips us up. Mm. And I think even the, the animals that we look at as sprinters, some, um, you know, some cats or, or you know, um, those fast running bastards, even they have the marathon thinking, you know, we might not catch our prey now, so let's not do everything right now in this sprint. You know, we're going to be quick, but, but. 
you know, let's rest and, and see. Yeah, and they're quite, quite good also at knowing that I have two sprints in me. I really pick my sprints very, very carefully. If I start this one and something happens that makes me realize I will not catch it, I stop. Because then I sort of have one and a half sprint left in me um, before I'm actually out of, of energy and I, I will not be able to kill anything because I don't have the resources. Um, Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm just kind of scanning internally, uh, you know, what my what my feeling world is about, and um, what I what I kind of uh, attach to. Um, I mean, the big sort of themes that I'm interested in is is, for example, the there's uh, a number of of fables and and fairy tales and so on where these issues become uh really really important they they make the difference between life and death you know so you have this uh hare and tortoise um analogy that often uh, well it kind of bears a certain truth it's um it's 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 a load bearing reality that as you say um it becomes evident contextually um, that there is wisdom to be had in the decisions that we make. And it's really easy in hindsight to say that that was the good or the bad decision. Um, but living in embodied wisdom, um, going against the grain in situations because you intuitively feel, um, oh, okay, uh, this looks like I should be doing this thing, and that's what everybody else is doing. But I think something else might be necessary. So, uh, you know, if you sort of deal with fires, um, if you manage to put the fire out when it's the size of, uh, you know, two square meters, well, then fantastic. But if you don't, um, you might actually have to back up and, and let the fire play out a little bit while you create um, uh, fire breaks further away in order that in the long picture um, you protect larger areas. And, you know, these are kind of experiential things that, that humans have slowly started to come to terms with. Um, that uh, if you slow down, you might actually make better decisions. And there's no question that we have um, emphasized speed to a greater degree uh, in, in an increasing acceleration. Speed is the thing. Um, and why speed is the thing um, has possibly to do with the idea of progress being so deeply ingrained in our culture as having something to do also with 
efficiency, speed, um, with with in, in in significant ways overstepping the boundaries of 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 human limitations. So a human can run at maximum. I don't know what it is. It's probably around uh, forty kilometers an hour. I don't know if that's overstating it. Uh, but a high-speed train, well, you know, they can get up to, I don't know where we are today, 280 kilometers an hour. Um, and that's yeah, in the, Sweden, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think our trains run at 280, um, but they, they do in Japan. The Japan ones, they, they've had ones that, that run at 500. Well, there you go. See 600. Yeah. Um, so... Why this is so, why we have this uh, interest in it is because we have a relationship to time um, that is as it is. And we tend to um, get stuck in the idea that our relationship to time is based on some sort of fact. And more often than not, it just isn't. Um, <laughs> it's that simple, you know. We have, uh, we make adjustments, we have models of the world that uh, are most convenient for the world that we want it to be, not the world as it is. Um, and possibly the way that uh, the Swedish uh, model is oriented is to say we want to deal with the way the world is and not the way we wish it was. So one of the the Swedish authorities, uh, one of the the... the directors, I think, of the um, National Health Authority, made the statement that um, attempting to control an entire population um, is a really unfortunate waste of resources when you're in the middle of, of a crisis like this. You need to think in different ways. You need to really apply yourself to the problem at hand in the way that the problem is, not in the way that you wish the problem was. And at the same time, um, this week, the, the government has sought uh, new powers to actually be able to lock down Swedish society because it, one of the explanations for the amazing wisdom that the Swedish authorities are showing is that they actually don't have support in law um, to lock down the society. So part of the sprinting and marathon um, uh, uh, analogy for me has to do with the way that we deal with information, that we rush to conclusions, being the first one to actually have the right information, the right explanation, um, that's made the first one to make sense of all the information is, is a um, part of a culture that says, me first. I'm first past the finish line. And there's possibly something even deeper than the, the marathon analogy that it says, um, longer spread of time, uh, more people crossing the line in a, a, a broader perspective. Not always the most appropriate, um, but often the most inclusive. So the, the, the inclusion and um, performance 
uh, uh, polarity comes up for me also in, in, in talking about um, marathons and sprints. You know, sprints for me tend to be between ten people. And marathons are 10,000 people, or even more. Mm. Precisely, and I was thinking the same, that there's that sort of number issue to it. And more people can, I think more people can do the marathon than can do the sprint, that's sort of if you're really competing to be among the best. Right. Well, that addition is really important. Mm. That you meet a lot of people that say, geez, I ran the Stockholm Marathon or I ran this or that marathon, the London Marathon or the Golden Gate Bridge Marathon. I don't know if they have one. Um, and everybody goes, wow, that's impressive. Um, and then, of course, there's millions of people who you meet to say, I ran a 100-meter sprint, and everybody goes, wow, that's incredible. Uh, no, you've never heard of any of those. Because the, the, the leverage of the competition issue is just so different. It's so completely different. And we have in these corona issues everywhere, a very acute issue of competition. And it's just so interesting to have to deal with, uh, as, a, as a group process, to have to deal with competition as an issue in the midst of all of this, in the way that it shows up, the ways that it shows up, um, how it shows up, what the issues are. And, and particularly I like this framework of, of sprinting and, and marathons. I mean, one of the sprints that the Swedish government really, really should have taken that they didn't do is getting information to uh, minority groups, to um, different immigrant communities, um, and also to uh, the other risk groups, uh, the, the, the aged and to uh, old age homes. So this week, I mean, we're talking about the end of March, um, there's been a flood of uh, new posters and all kinds of information attempts to, to, to cover the, the different language bases as quickly as possible. And these are areas there where there should have been sprints and there's been a lot of marathon activity going on. Um, I was thinking about that also that like the spread of the news of 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 this coronavirus global pandemic is sort of so linked to digital you know i i get it online that's where the information comes and thanks to that the spread is just sort of you know it just ripples out really really quickly and then everybody on earth has this but there's still that i've been reading quite a lot of posts lately about people i mean in sweden the the 
sort of the, the recommendation is to, if you're sick at all, any symptoms, you stay put. Don't, don't move, don't leave your house. Um, if you're not, if you can work from home, do sort of try to restrict, do the physical distancing, wash your hands and yada yada. And I've seen so many posts online on Facebook and stuff about people sort of, you know, going to a mall and being the only one that's below 70 of age. Because it's, it's filled with people who are old, right? And it's like, wait, hey, you guys, I'm sort of staying put and, and you know, to protect you guys, but you're out here. And I was thinking about that, that many, there's, there's definitely a sort of a, a, a higher number and an increasing number of old people, elderly, because we're old too, Dominic, we know that. But sort of the 70 plus who are using online more and more, but it's still a lesser number than what it is in, in younger ages. So they have not been inundated with the same sense of urgency and pandemic terror, you know, it's killing people. And that that might be one of those answers or reasons for why many of the aged are still sort of out and about, even in Sweden. I think information could absolutely be a part of it. But what I've also seen, one of my favorite comedians has, has a show called Marcus Möter where he basically goes out in town and, and, you know, he has a mic, there's a camera, he's funny. Uh, you know, talking to people, he, he's gone to um, um, one of, you know, the hottest place to go, places to go out, Stureplan, uh, in Stockholm, where there's only brats and, and people with, you know, it's the place to be. Uh, and so he walks up to people and, you know, goes funny in conversation with him. He went to um, um, a mall in Stockholm that's famously for old people. You know, where that's that's where elderly people go to, to buy groceries or whatever. And he walks up and says, why the fuck are you out? And they go, you know, I'm a social person. Or uh, someone goes, well, I'm a fit person. I, I walk every day and you know, there's, there's the mentality of we've been through stuff before. This is not a thing. And I don't know if that's only... I mean, information is absolutely a part of it because I think I've read up on, on far more... As you're saying, online. I've been taking a lot more um, information in on how bad this virus really is. Um... But I think also it, the mentality plays in of, ah, you know, I'm fit. I'm not like the other old people. So I think it's a, it's a both and to that. Because absolutely, I agree. The, the information needs to spread in multiple different different ways and for targeted you know as as we've been talking about what's the target group how do we reach them where is the attention 
Um, and the attention for, for people 70 plus isn't on the, the internet. You know, on a, on a group base, it's in newspapers, it's on television. And it's word to mouth, or what do you call it? Word to mouth, word to mouth, mouth. Word to word, mouth word to, to word. Mouth. Yeah. Mouth person to person. Well, the, the relationship part. Let's just say that. <laughs> so, you know, the, there's also an aspect of, yes, we need to write about it more in the newspapers. Yes, we need to, to pay more attention to it in the news, which I think they have. The, the news coverage that I've seen on television has been, you know, pretty, pretty substantial on Corona. And then there's the part of, of us actually telling our old people to stay the fuck indoors. You know, it doesn't help if I'm, I'm writing a Facebook post about it. I need to call my relatives and say, stay the fuck indoors. Mm. Because and, that's where their uh, attention is. The, the message in, in Swedish society to stay indoors is not at all unusual. Um, so whenever there's a, a fire in an industrial area, uh, it goes out on the news on every single possible channel on TV, on radio. Mm. Um, you know, you get text bleeps, etc., etc. Um, that's not strange. Um, and generally people do pay attention. The same with weather. Um, it's like uh, 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 the weather service has a certain power um, in that they have a, a, a warning system. And even though you can, you can speak to probably a majority of Swedes, they won't be able to tell you how the warning system works, but they know that if a warning is released, they have to listen. And it's really important. So they will stay home. If there's a storm warning that says, don't go out, they don't go out. The majority of people don't go out or take it very seriously. Um, however, this is a kind of a classic social psychology problem that by tomorrow the storm's going to pass, or maybe in two days. You know, so if you're really, 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 really obedient and and um, uh, uh, kind of, you know, um, accept your 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 status as a subject of the state. Um, well, then you don't go out today because the storm is today, and then um, tomorrow. You don't go out until the end of the day, but there hasn't been any news that you should stay inside, so um, it's probably okay. By the third day, you're out. But if there is on the third day again, um, you should stay inside, and again two days later, and again two days later, people start to think, but this is really weird. Why do I have to stay inside? It can't be that bad. It's never been that bad. It's just a storm. Why? Sorry, what's going on? And this is not strange in any way. It's just human behavior. Um, and it, it, it emerges differently for different age groups, different cultures, uh, different regions. And one of the, the, the crises, I think, is that, for example, um, there's a lot of, of, of um, difference between people who live in cities and people who live in, in small villages. Um, so people who live in cities 
who are uh, septian octogenarians have imbibed a culture in which um, they've basically become mole rats, um, but they're not skateboarding mole rats. Um, they're just another generation, but they have the, uh, the mole programming. This is a thing that you do, and you live in this world in which things are served to you, and you buy what is served to you, because that's the right thing to do. That's how you affirm your, your, your citizenship. You're a good citizen for doing that. And that's really not the same in, in, in small villages where there's quite different activities. And similarly, uh, in, in, in different cultural groups, there's different ways of, of dealing with these kinds of crises. Um, and for me, the, the, the thing here about recognizing a crisis, being able to identify um, something of scale uh, like coronavirus and being able to communicate it is something that the majority of people on the planet are entirely unprepared for. Learning as they go along, the people that are evidently, evidently based on simple facts that are, that were most prepared for this was Taiwan. They did a good job. So Taiwan responds in December. It takes out, it rolls out all of its, its, its knowledge and, and uh, practice from SARS and pushes the red button. There's a fire warning, there's a tsunami warning. So this is what we do under those circumstances. We don't go into a big philosophical discussion about whether it's appropriate or what are the political effects or whatever, we see the evidence of an emerging threat. This is how we respond. And it pays off amazingly. Now that's a sprint. And it's a really short sprint and it's amazingly cheap. It's like... It really hits the spot. And, and, and amazing coherence. Everybody sprints at the same time. Um, same race, this is like the 10,000 people in the marathon, um, but extremely concentrated at a, a national level. Um, and it works. And the reason it works is because the sprint is being held in a context of a longer journey. And it's the appropriate place for everybody to run. That's where everybody has to sprint. And, you know, uh, China, three and a half thousand cases, the neighbor, doesn't make the scale because they've got 45. And the crucial part is probably um, not so much conveying information about the threat, but conveying information that the threat. So there's no need to convince anybody that it's a a terrible thing or not a terrible thing because everybody's already been through SARS. There is a broad cultural acceptance of a problem. So in Sweden, there's a broad cultural acceptance of authority. Um, people do possibly to a much greater degree than any other modern democracy completely sort of believe in compliance as a, 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 a low 
um, level of, of demand on a citizen. Yeah, this is kind of basics. This is the stuff that, 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 that comes with the job. This is what you signed up for. So everybody agrees to that. There's no problem in hearing that message. But the content of the message becomes really problematic very, very soon. When it comes to Taiwan, it's also interesting that they are sort of, what with the history with China, they're not necessarily a part of these worldwide organizations like the World Health Organization. They have their own little sort of, well, China doesn't want to, doesn't like to, yada, yada. So that the sharing of, of we've done this, we've done that, and why, and, and data and stuff, they're, they're sort of on their own, <laughs> which apparently works fine for them because they acted snappy. But what, what are we not learning? What are we not gaining from from their experience from from the way that they have responded um. that's also one of those sort of aspects that i hadn't thought about right but it's like oh yeah Sure. That marathon view, I think, also includes um, the ability for uh, any decision-making bodies to have enough um, presence in their, their situation to, to contain a much broader view and to understand causality um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a relatively integrated way, uh, not to be stuck into sort of simple causality, but to understand causality in, 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 in multiple levels. So in the sense that, I mean, very quickly after uh, the the co-virus starts to spread, people start to understand that um, fatality rates are to a large degree dependent on what the condition of the patient is. Um, and you start to understand the relationship between necessary um, and sufficient uh, causality that the, the virus may not cause death by itself, um, possibly can do that. Um, it's not sufficient in itself, um, but in a context of other diseases, it just kind of increases the possibility of, of fatality. If you take that picture, zoom out a little bit into broader marathon view, then you get things like SARS into the picture. Um, you get things like H1N1 into the picture, other viruses. And if you zoom out a little bit more into a, into a longer marathon, um, there are other... Uh, broader epidemiological anthropologies to take in, to understand the, the human history of its relationship with disease for the last 10, for the last 20, for the last 50, 100 years. Um, and it reveals 
a lot about how those decisions are made, when to sprint and when not to sprint. And how often the same decision is, is, is made in an unfortunate way. So with uh, um, uh, the Spanish flu, for example, um, social distancing was a big issue. It was a huge issue. There were astonishing degrees of uh, transmission happening in, in, in certain cities. Um, I can think of, uh, I think the example is, is St. Louis, where they had parades because the war had ended. Um, and uh, the, the, the transmission rate and, and subsequent fatality rate in St. Louis is astonishing compared to cities where they said, no, we're cancelling everything. Um, sorry, folks, stay home until, uh, and, and, until the flood is over, you know, until the fire is put out. Um, so one of the, the, the kind of flashes that comes up for me is that... Um, very recently, during this, this, this uh, virus period, um, the American uh, CDC, the, uh, what are they called? The Center for Disease Center Control. For Disease Control um, they release a report that around 35,000 people die every year because of multi-resistant, um, uh, antibiotic-resistant diseases, infections, not diseases, infections. 35,000 people. In the U.S. or in the in world? In the U.S. Yeah. So that race has a history. That's also a place where we've chosen to sprint as fast as possible and load in huge amounts of, of suppressants. We're putting out fires that we imagine to be fires very, very quickly. As fast as possible, kill the fire. And... As a result, we've got seriously out of control, huge burn, you know. We result in scorched earth. Now, the, the discussion around uh, multi-resistance is not really on the table since, yeah, I would say probably about 10 years. It's not that interesting. Um, and I would say that probably that picture starts to change at around H1N1 because prior to H1N1, multi-resistance is a huge issue because it is the issue in uh, uh, hospitals. And then, yeah, things change, you know. Um, suddenly we're not looking at that. But we don't apply fewer antibiotics. And uh, an, an indicator like that... Um, yeah, that's a canary in the coal mine indicator. Another thing that passed under the radar is that um, uh, the EU signed off on an Ebola vaccine uh, very recently. Yeah, exactly. I was raised by the word. Sorry, an Ebola vaccine. Is it true? Is it possible? Well, apparently so. Um, there is one. So that, that's what yeah, exactly. It's like, what? There's an Ebola vaccine? Yeah, there's an Ebola vaccine. There's been a whole number of trials, and seemingly uh, uh, the EU has signed off on the first generation of, of Ebola vaccines. I haven't uh, really gone deep into this. I just read uh, some uh, stuff on the surface 
uh, this morning. Um, That's amazing. It potentially is really amazing. Yeah. I mean, if if it works. If it works, yeah. Um, And the bottom, the thing for me there in the, in the at the at the at the at the, the base of this image, the the cauldron that holds it together is that um, there's a need for um, a, a higher order of presence in decision making to be able to with wisdom make these distinctions about when is the sprint necessary and when it isn't and how to do that and things like co-virus are amazing amazing totally astonishing events that bring out these group processes that have got so many levels of learning involved so many levels of learning there's virtually not a sector of life that is not affected by it, that is not stimulated by it. The signal runs across all frequencies. It's really quite astonishing. But is it a little bit like this, the coronavirus leading to COVID-19 disease, that, that other sort of parable of if you have a, a pot of boiling water and you have a frog and it jumps in the water, it will jump out faster than fast. Exactly. Right? But if you have it in the water, it's cold, and then you turn on the heat and it slowly starts to, to heat up, all of a sudden the frog is dead because, oh, well, it's getting a little bit hot, but it'll be fine, right? And then you're gone. So corona is, is sort of the first one. It's like, oh, shit, the water is boiling. You know, we, it's like, it, it's, it's such a quick onset and, and something so different. Whereas, I, fish farms, like you have fish farms where, if I've understood it correctly, basically, the majority of all fish farms has to have antibiotics in the feed for the fish for the farm to at all be functional. Because if you wouldn't preventively sort of be putting antibiotics in the fish, they would all just die. And that's more of the frog in the cold water and you're slowly heating it up, where people just, this is just how we do it. It's like, you know, you get a little bit of a problem with fish dying and, you know, how can we solve it? Well, we'll feed them some antibiotics and it's oh look problem solved right where it's just for me it's just absolutely incomprehensible that that is is a business that model that is that that anybody could think hey great idea like no really not really really dumb idea in, in in any sort of shape, way, shape, or form. But the corona is, is sort of it's it's you know rapid onset and, and so everybody's reacting. 
I think it's kind of, um, for me, uh, uh, one of those difficulties of our present state in the world is that uh, what the, the, the analogy of the, the boiling frog is so fantastic because um, we're experiencing here two things at once. We are experiencing um, the, the water being near boiling point and the frog jumps out. And at the exact same time, we're experiencing the opposite, that we've been in this thing for so long, um, and we're now at the point where, um, well, it's kind of on the edge as to whether there's enough energy left to pull yourself out of the soon-to-boil pot. So if SARS wasn't enough, if, uh, you know, you name them, um, well, those were also moments when uh, the frog notices that it's boiling. Um, oh, well, you know, we can just uh, transfer to another pot or uh, whatever the case might be. It's like really... <laughs> yeah, I'll jump to that one over there. Yeah, oh, that one's cooler, but I, idea. I need to carry on with uh, this process, you know. There's um, another thing that came up for me in that um, analogy. You spoke about uh, hunter-gatherers. And uh, one of the interesting things around the, the hunter-gatherer uh, sort of set of um, uh, parameters of how hunter-gatherers are, are looked at, and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the, the, one of the, 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 the valuable things in there for me is, is um, what the evidence that comes out of, of anthropological studies and also out of archaeological studies has to do with accumulation. Um, and, of course, some of the hunter-gatherer people are also uh, non-sedentary, so they move around um, and create new places to live, which is the the um, the analogy you use that that we have to we have to keep moving for these two days in order to get to safety or whatever the case might be. Um, and the relationship to food is very similar. That um, you don't, as a, a hunter-gatherer group, um, you don't do accumulation. You take what's necessary for the day, um, and in 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 some accounts, uh, for example, people who have uh, done interviews with with uh, San uh, people around the Kalahari and and uh, parts of Namibia and Angola and so on, um, the the picture that is shared is one of saying, um, it's not that you take enough for the day, you you don't take enough of the day. Take less than what you need. And even that less than what you need, um, you share with everybody equally. 
and this is the direct experience of, of abundance, that there's always going to be more. So you don't need to take an excess, and often um, you actually consciously leave off taking as much as you imagine that you need, because you probably don't really need it, but um, you feel like, wow, it, there's, there's low-hanging fruit, so we might as well take all of it. Um, and these are really, really deep-seated marathon thinking uh, styles, patterns of, of relationship to, to life as uh, whole experiences rather than um, the sprints. So sufficiency, stopping at sufficiency, knowing when to uh, let go or knowing when to engage something, um, how long an arc needs to be observed, how long, what kind of presence is required in order to make these, these decisions. And into what scale do they change? I mean, I kind of get really fascinated by how um, the kind of opinion mill um, from which one can gain amazing information around uh, something like coronavirus also contains the idea that everybody's lives look exactly the same as mine. And although life in, in, in Sweden has a particular type of quality, and it's easy for us to talk about how a society is managed in the way that it is, we have 1% less than of the population of China. 1% less than what? Well, the Swedish population is less than 10 million. Oh, yeah. So our scaling is of a totally different order to what it is in China or to what it is in, in India or what it is in the US. So as a result, I think that whatever it is that I think, um, I'm kind of completely, largely blinded by the fact that in the environment I'm living in, um, there isn't a lot of information to confirm um, the stuff that I'm looking at from other places. Come back to your, your pensioners in, in malls, um, and there really isn't, you know. I mean, uh, you notice that there's a lot fewer people around in Sweden. There's not a lot of people out, um, but there are people out. And there's no sense of threat or um, fear or anything like that going on. And there's hardly anybody moving around with a, a face mask or something like that. Um, I've seen more and more. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. But, a but month it's still ago, not China. At the, at the peak no, of no. the... Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's like not even, you know, it's... I've seen four perhaps mm. in the last week when I've been moving about. I, and I, I've only seen um, Asian people, people of Asian descent, wearing masks at all. 
I mean, now it's starting to change, but it's definitely not been uh, uh, European uh, Swedes and so on who are wearing masks. And that's also for me an interesting experience because if you on public transport and somebody gets on with a mask and they're the only person with a mask and they also um, other for the context. So sitting on a train, somebody gets on the, on the train with a mask, everybody looks up and goes, <gasps> they're wearing a mask. And at the same time, there's a kind of palpable, okay, they're also Asian. So, well, that explains everything. But I know that's one of the things that I've heard from, from an American who's here in Sweden, that it's, it's kind of hard and, and for, for other people who come from other places who have chosen the sprint uh, rather than the marathon, that it's kind of weird because you're sort of, you know, you're emotionally connected to this country you're coming from and you have all of your family there perhaps and you have lots of, you know, you read the newspapers and, and articles and, and stories from there and then it's just such a juxtaposition to, to sort of the Swedish model at the moment is like, but what do I do? <laughs> sort of, there's such a palpable difference in, in strategies that for somebody who's sort of with one leg in two countries, it can be really hard. Um, who do I trust? You know, I come from a state in the US where they propose sort of total lockdown and, and I live in Sweden and they're like, well, sure, if you're sick, stay at home and, and if you can work from home, but you know, like, <laughs> yeah, disconnect. Disconnect, yeah. Who do I trust? I think, I think that's one thing that comes up for me in, in that is how we're dealing with, with fear in ourselves on an individual level and, and on a societal level. Um, one thing that, that Seth Godin talks about when, when it comes to running marathons is that marathon runners do get tired. It's not that they're not tired. They, they continue running despite being tired because they know where to put the tired. He explains this as, you know, you, you have this voice and you have this feeling, but you put it aside. You yeah, put it you somewhere. You don't put it top of mind. Exactly. You don't focus on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think the same thing goes for, for fear right now. People don't know where to put their fear. So a lot of people have it right here. So where are you guys putting your fear? 
the same place I would put a, a tired, I think. I think I'm using the exact same method. When you put it yeah. tired? I acknowledge it. When, when I'm out running, I, I sort of... When I feel that tired coming up, I scan my body seeing if, if there's anything dangerous happening to my body. You know, am I tired enough that my knees are going to actually take damage from this? Am I tired enough for, for my calves to actually take damage of this? So I do a quick scan and then I realize, no, it's just regular tired. It will pass. And then I put it away again. And I think it's the same with this fear. I do a scan. Are we, as a society, um, you know, are we on the brink of collapse? The same thing as, as we did with the, the migration crisis in, in 2015. Are we on the brink of collapse? No, we're not. Things are strange. Things are different. Things are chaotic. Yes. Are we on the brink of collapse? No. There's no reason for me to be scared of my life. And I think that exercise of both honing your body, honing your, you know, tuning into yourself. I think that's something that you learn from, from doing uh, sports, from, from doing, you know, running very far. I think that's something that you, you learn from that. I think that's a vital part of, of uh, enrolling in military, for example. What people learn is that, you know, I can scan my body, I can assess a situation, and then I can put my focus elsewhere. We've been doing a lot of renovation at, at my mom's house for the past year, too. Uh, and so I've been carrying a lot of stuff with her husband. And, and he, he once told me when, when we were carrying something very heavy, I can't remember what it was. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of small guy. He's a really big guy, um, especially in comparison to me. Um, and so, of course, he can take a lot more. But he also told me what what, what I learned from from when I was in the military was that you know, in order to carry something, I just need to lock my fingers in position. That's the only thing I need to do because nothing's gonna break. My arms aren't gonna fall off. I just need to lock in. So let's do that. And I've tried it. It works. So when I'm running, I just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. One step at a time. When we're in this crisis, I just need to follow the recommendations. I need to keep my... my 
views wide open to to take in and assess new information you know all of a sudden we could we could realize that okay this virus doesn't only uh transmit via um you know person to person it might be airborne or whatever okay i need to assess that information Then again, it's the action that comes after is locking my hands. It will be interesting to see what happens now. I just read this morning that the World Health Organization has now put out a new little paragraph in there. This is the status on Corona that there is pre-symptomatic Contagion. I mean, you, you can be contagious before uh, you show any symptoms. And that has not been in the WHO's sort of this is what happens with, with corona until now. Yeah. Until I thought today. that was widespread. Huh? I thought we knew that already. No. it's not, Well, it's not been proven. Yeah. And what do you think of that? Well, it it doesn't surprise me because that's sort of what that's what a lot of diseases, sort of contagious diseases, are like that. So it's it's not a surprise. Um, it it sort of puts a twist on the Swedish stay at home if you have any symptoms. But other than that, you know, use your brain and sort of maybe try to minimize and whatnot. It's like, what will happen to that? Um, so I'm, I think I'm more curious about what it will do, how the, the rules of the marathon might be changing right now, rather than me going, oh, then I will self-contain or, or anything. I haven't sort of, I haven't come to that point yet. Um, but I might, who knows? But it's been, I've been, I was listening to some BBC Four pod the other day and, and they were saying this sort of, if we were actually to put sort of self-quarantine, total lockdown, everything, what happens to diabetics who need insulin? What happens to people with heart disease who needs um uh, nitroglycerin tablets and, and you know what what happens to me who does not live in a place where I have sort of the basement stocked with potatoes so I can you know it's like what happens with the water and the electricity and, and sort of so again like you we had it one of the other episodes with this with the the tarzan employees of canada being deemed necessary for society well, well you laugh dominic at that which i can totally agree on but that's well it was just a choice between point, laughing and vomiting you know yes but that sort of it's a little bit different aspect on that but it's like where do we put 
the, the limits and what will, if we were actually to impose absolute ban, what then? Because then the healthcare workers can't be working in the hospitals either. <laughs> sort of, not if we're actually serious about total lockdown, then, you know, it's total lockdown. Everybody fend for themselves in their own little place. It's like, that won't happen. Well, no one's gone, people gone in, that far. In, this... in, in sort of space suits walking about on the streets, but who will they be? Is it just hospital staff? Is it the, the water plant staff? Is it the electricity plant staff? Is it the farmers? Who is it? Well, I think most, uh, most modern uh, societies have gone through these kind of questions on an abstract level. So, most countries you can think of have got uh, actionable plans. How good they are is another question, but most people will accept that all of the things you're talking about, uh, health care, utilities, um, are, are the basics. <laughs> we, we, don't, we can't deal with life as we know it without them. Um, everybody understands that you have to eat, you have to have water, you have to have clean air, um, and that anybody that's put in a situation that doesn't have access to those things is going to start behaving in their own best interest. And that can be anything from rioting to um, people just uh, breaking curfew or whatever the case might be. Um, I think most uh, most most governments have some sort of idea of, of what those decisions are about. Um, I think a lot of the the, I mean, for me the, this becomes the the discussion on what are the. The, the follow-on effects. What are the, second and third order effects that, already are being, uh, seen actively, in, in principle all. Uh, countries and societies across the globe. What what are the the effects that don't have to do with infection on a personal level? And that you, we we we're seeing that um, exactly those healthcare workers are being infected and are actually dying um, as a result. So we're sort of one step away from that. Um, People who manage these kind of, of services, like garbage collection, you don't collect the garbage, you could have some really serious healthcare problems on your hands very, very quickly. Mm. Um, so these are the kind of things that people see as essential services. But if you look at Korea, for example, people who collect the garbage during the corona process are wearing hazmat suits. I haven't checked on, on my garbage collectors, but I don't think they do. No, they they're wearing this the standard um, reflective. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the 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 span here is enormous. I mean, um, you can't use that type of gear if you haven't had training for it. No, that's right. And between the three of us, I'm quite sure we don't know a single person who has 
hazmat suit training. But we know a hell of a lot of people between the three of us. I mean, even the doctors that we know between us uh, don't. don't have hazmat suit training. No. A lot of people don't even know how to use face masks. I have been sort of working in sterile, sterile, um, you know, pharma production stuff. That's yeah. and it's, fucking, you know, you you sort of forget yourself and you touch your face with your precisely body. out. <laughs> you know, you're out of there. It's like oh shit. Um, but but it's interesting because it's like what ends would justify the means i mean that's sort of the crux of it, of the whole thing um what are the means that we are taking and, and what's the end result that we're envisioning and are they sort of level mm. so i mean some of the the ends of our current means are maybe instructive i mean we have across europe um crises with uh, uh, food workers now. There are real concerns about harvesting foods, even in Sweden, because normally um, you would be employing cheap labor um, from across, you know, wherever, Eastern Europe, etc., etc., and they're uh, migratory laborers, that, that possibility is just excluded right now. So if those uh, supply chains are broken, um, there are just so many systemic effects of each of these things, you know, if you don't have people to come and collect your, your garbage. Well, we still have lots of garbage workers. Well, that's true, but they may actually be infected by um, something like coronavirus or, or just for argument's sake, to be abstract, we can call it disease X, um, what happens when they're ill? Well, then they can't go out and collect the garbage anymore. They could if they had hazmat suits, but we don't have hazmat suits and we don't have the training. Okay, so what are the sprints and what are the marathons we have to think about here? Um, in what order? What are the priorities? And uh, on, a, on a societal level, the question is, what capacities have we got to make these decisions? Who's making these decisions? Who are the people and what are their, their backgrounds, their abilities, and so on, to make those decisions? And at the moment, the, 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 the press are sort of out to support the, um, the, the, the Swedish leader um, who put forward this whole strategy. Um, so there's a lot of support for his, his thinking. Um, and there's also been amazing criticism, really, really lots of, of hate posts and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they recently published this article explaining how he was involved in, in dealing with Ebola crises in, in, in uh, former Zaire. Um, I don't know whether that actually become uh, at the time, but um, the, the, the point being that he uh, and two other Swedes put themselves into a situation where 
uh, people basically fled the hospitals um, and they went in there uh, in hazmat suits and started to put together uh, treatment and management regimes um, that eventually had the desired uh, result. And, and one of the things that he does right from the beginning is he orders a huge number of bicycles. Um, everybody goes like, what? And the bicycles are there for people to get to outlying villages and say, there's an Ebola crisis, this is what you need to do. Um, well, great decision-making, and um, in hindsight, uh, sort of one of those things that's, uh, you know, very assuring. It's possible to make those decisions, but that doesn't mean that we're actually making those decisions now. And we, we are still... Um, how should one put it, um, subject to in the grasp of uh, the, the institutions that manage our societies, that make these decisions, whether it's the CDC or the WHO or any of these people, most of the, the, the staffers there are in a world that is largely unprepared. They are not in the state of Taiwan prior to uh, COVID, so they're not in a, a, a Taiwanese mindset um, in November of last year. They're not. They're in the mindset where everybody else is right now. Oh fuck, we don't know what we're doing, but we're going to keep up appearances and uh, we're just trying to do the best that we can. And there's not that much else to do. Um, if you're not going to step out of the way and uh, open up the, 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 the scope of inquiry to include as many people as possible, this is one of the things that the internet offers. You could have your 40,000 people online every day working through these things, and I'm sure that there are uh, people that are interested in doing that, but they're not that focused. They're not that organized. We don't have any evidence of really coherent intelligence making critical decisions on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment, not that I'm aware of. There's some very smart people out there. There's some really interesting things being said about what's happening in the virus, what's it doing, et cetera, et cetera, but there's not that much coordination. Hand-eye coordination, pretty poor for the moment. And I'm not trying to say that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. We needed a different response in Sweden for the Somalian communities. We needed a different response in Sweden for old age homes. And as you say, it might turn out that we actually needed an entirely different response um, because the, the communicability, communicability of the the infection uh, may be seriously misunderstood, that you may well be contagious long before.
Is that so a wrap? What to do with our fear? Because these are also things that that result out of fear. All of the the nationalism that occurs. I mean, these uh, sort of scenarios of of plague are so deeply ingrained in our psyches. This very very deep fear of sicknesses. Shut the city walls. Don't let anybody in. Don't let anybody off the boat. Um, you know, we've we've been doing this as a as a species for a long time. Yeah, we have. And I think we've had a lot of responses to fear because we've had a lot of it in the past couple of years. Well, probably always, but but I've seen it a lot in the past couple of years. Um, and I mean, Hungary this week gave Orban, you know, I don't even know what they gave him. I just know that it's, you know, a lot of power. Benevolent dictator for life status. Yeah. Which is, you know, a response to fear. It is. And the whole campaign of, of his has been a uh, response to fear. It's been fear management from the start. Yeah, and it's probably going to result in a significant um, rewriting of the geopolitical map. The things that hold everything stable and in alliance today may well not be the same by next year. I mean, the, the Hungarian government is, is part of this uh, so-called Three C's initiative. What's that? The Three C's initiative is a grouping of 12 uh, EU countries that are around the Caspian and Adriatic and Black Sea. So your sea, King Caspian, who we also call sea. Um, it's all very confusing, but um, yeah, the Three Seas Initiative, it's, a, it's an attempt to create uh, greater coherence, um, and I think may even be an EU initiative, I'm not entirely sure. But in that initiative uh, included are Slovakia, um, Czech Republic, Slovenia, Poland, um, and there are strong cultural values in uh, a number of those countries. Serbia, Croatia are part of uh, that initiative. So, for example, Poland, um, during the H1N1 crisis, just out of hand rejected the uh, vaccination processes. And here's one of those sprint moments that you can wonder uh, what happened here, because Poland didn't have any problems with swine flu. And so the, the, the general opinion was uh, from that arena that um, the whole thing was a completely unnecessary, uh, over-dramatized, 
business initiative. And this is kind of part of that um, experience for me that I spoke of last week or, or last time we spoke that the boy who cried wolf and uh, um, the boy who says the emperor has no clothes and little Hans who puts his finger in the dike, um, they're pretty much all the same person. It's like a kind of a carousel and it's really confusing because the things that we're used to relying on um, are not that that fixed. So these people that are part of the the Three C's initiative uh, may well turn out to be um, exactly its opposite. It's not going to lead to a more coherent EU. It's rather leading to a separate alliance where there's a greater coherence of values, where there's a, a, a greater recognition amongst the partner states of um, shared interests, uh, some sort of understanding of, of a common future. Because a lot of those, those countries who are new members to the EU feel very, very desperately let down. They feel like they've basically been ripped off. And that can be understood. I mean, when uh, Romania became a member of the EU, they were, uh, I, I stand corrected, but in the region of two and a half million small farms were the basis of food security in, in Romania. And by the end of membership for a few years, that number had reduced by 90%. I mean, there were 200,000 small farms. How did that happen? Well, uh, the financialization process allowed huge predatory operators from within the EU to push those people off their farms, buy them out, and make 200,000 much bigger farms um, out of the 2.5 million small farms. And, of course, the resilience of the system goes down probably cumulatively by greater than 90%. Um, you know, these are also, for me, images of the, the marathon. These are background uh, um, uh, scenarios that, 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 when we talk about second-order effects of, of corona, about food crises, etc., etc., um, this is one of those things that makes the whole process so much more vulnerable, that makes the system so much more fragile. And Romania is part of that um, three C's agreement. So do uh, Romanians feel any kind of loyalty towards the EU? I don't, I don't know, I can't say, but you know, I would seriously doubt that that's the case. So there seems to be a kind of general tendency towards regressing into nationalist uh, thinking across the globe to, into, into places where we probably haven't been since the Second World War uh, or even prior to the uh, First World War, the beginning of the, the Great Powers game, so 1850 onwards. Um, 
some of the images that emerge out of this process. There's a, an aircraft carrier, an American aircraft carrier that um, seems to have uh, gotten um, coronavirus infection. The one outside Guam? Yeah. So when these things happen and they start to become contagions within their own right, they uh, open up um, possibly small cracks in the, in the current global order, but they are uh, gaps that are likely to lead to changes. I'm hesitant to take the line of that they're going to be exploited because it sort of runs this idea of, of enemies, of people being pitted against each other, which is really just silly because we're all pretty much in the same situation at the same time. But it's seemingly unavoidable that there's going to be shifts in, in, in global alliances. So if we can accept that idea of that, we, we maybe are somewhere around 1850, that we're rerunning some of those, those discussions currently. Um, we might just come out of the coronavirus, like at the end of, of the Second World War, where suddenly the United States is uh, the dominant power um, on the planet. Uh, we might just come out of this with China being the dominant power on the planet and with BRICS being the new NATO or um, being the, the, the sort of um, the game decider, the people setting the rules for the game. These are not unthinkable scenarios. And that might be our new marathon. You know, that's, that's possibly the next... 100 or 70 years or whatever um, of, of, uh, of play out.